this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. Today I will be speaking with Joe Street, author of the book Dirty Harry's America, Clint Eastwood, Harry Callahan, and the Conservative Backlash. The book was published in 2016 by the University Press of Florida. Eastwood's Dirty Harry character was featured in five films, from the first in 1971 to The Deadpool, the final installment, in 1988. While Don Siegel, director of the first, specifically denied tried to make any political statement with Dirty Harry, the character was quickly seen as a law and order answer to the current events of the time. Joe and I talk about how he decided to tell this story and discuss the making of the series. Welcome, Joe Street. I'm talking to Joe Street, author of Dirty Harry's America, Clint Eastwood, Harry Callahan, and The Conservative Backlash. Now, this was a book I saw a reference to. In fact, actually, the New Books Network had a copy of it sent by the publisher and immediately was a, was something I was, I was uh, called to because it's an interesting topic from the very beginning. The films, the Dirty Harry films in particular, are, you know, have always been quite controversial and interesting even when they first came out. So I wanted to uh, get a chance to talk to you about the book. Um, so beforehand, though, let's let's get a little bit of your background. Uh, this is not your first book, but obviously um, what's your education and other kinds of background that sort of leads you to write a book about uh, Dirty Harry? Well, sort of my uh, my backstory, you might say. In the, um, well, uh, my first book, which came out of my PhD thesis, was all about the African-American civil rights movement. And uh, what I wanted to do with that book was examine the ways that uh, civil rights protesters, um, like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and various other groups, uh, used cultural forms like theatre, art, music, um, most obviously comedy at times, um, to put forward their political views. Um, and that, that book simply finished a little bit of a, um, a period in my life, you might say. Um, once I'd got that book out, I was casting around for something else to write about. And at the same time, I was uh, teaching a module at um, my first uh, permanent job at the University of Kent at Canterbury, uh, all about America in the 1960s. And uh, Kent had asked me to uh, design this module with a view to incorporating visual elements. And I thought, well, we might as well have some film in there. And I would pair up each week with a film. 
And when we were doing um, American conservatism, I thought, well, you know, these, these are kids who've grown up in the 2000s, probably haven't heard of Dirty Harry. And I thought it was actually an ideal film to, to for them to watch and to think about some of the themes that were important to late 1960s conservatism. And uh, I, I remember one vividly one seminar where um, the, the students were bemoaning the reading. And they were saying, well, you know, we, we've got all of these ideas about this movie. How come nobody else has written about it? And then one of them said, uh, Joe, why don't you write about it? And so, so I did. And uh, I wrote an article um, which was published in an academic journal called The Sixties, um, which basically became the chapter on, um, on Dirty Harry, the original film in the book. And, and that went well. And I uh, then just sort of carried on writing. And uh, within a few years, I had enough for a book. And here it is. So where are you currently teaching? I'm currently teaching at Northumbria University, which is in Newcastle upon Tyne in the northeast of, of England. Um, and I, uh, I don't do the 1960s as much now, um, in part because of Dirty Harry, in fact. Uh, I've become more and more fascinated with the history of the San Francisco Bay Area in itself. So I do um, a module about the San Francisco Bay Area in popular culture. And I do another one on the Black Panther Party, which is my current research project. And the Black Panther Party was a uh, Marxist-Leninist group in the 1960s, one of the most famous radical organizations of the time. Um, so I've kind of moved on a little bit from Dirty Harry, but I'm hoping to, to loop back in the next project, which examines, as I say, the Bay Area in the 1960s and 70s. And as I say, I'm, I was uh, born in 1956, so I remember vividly when Dirty Harry came out and the controversy. I actually was too young to see it when it actually first came out, but uh, I do know that it was an unbelievable time as far as, as you point out quite often in the book, is that it came out, what was the exact release date of Dirty Harry? Uh, it was late 1971. It was one, one of the, right. the, the Christmas blockbuster movies, you might say now, although they, they didn't really exist at the time, but it was, it was a big holiday movie. And just to make sure everybody understands context, what when? I mean, obviously, I know some of this, but I want to talk to you about it. Uh, what was going on mm -hmm. during this period that because uh, obviously the, the, the fact that it was a conservative backlash was for a good reason as far as the filmmakers. So. Um, what time period, this time period of 1971 and the 70s, early 70s, what kind of things were going on that there might be a need for or a desire for some sort of a pushback from conservatives? We have uh, the decline of the civil rights movement. We have a, a, a rising sense that there's almost an urban crisis in the United States. Um, that's focused around um, inner city illegality, criminality and violence, um, that itself is an articulation of the, the failures of uh, you know, big government, you might say, or that this is at least what the, the, the conservatives say. Um, you have in 1966, the election of Ronald Reagan, 1968, then Richard Nixon, both following a, a very conservative path in terms of their rhetoric and in terms of their analysis of the, the problems facing the United States. And their combined election, you would have thought, would have solved the crisis if the, the Republicans or the, the conservative um, diagnosis was correct. But in actual fact, it gets worse. Vietnam becomes more and more problematic. Um, there are more and more, there's more and more violence at home. 
centered around the um the response to the anti-war movement and it's kind of in this um circumstances that dirty harry is is released um and it, and it it touches on so many of these issues that it's i think it's hard to see it as anything other than a, a response to what is perceived to be um a major crisis facing the united states Right, because um, both, I don't know about, I'm not as familiar with Reagan's governor campaign, but I do know uh -huh. that Nixon clearly ran on the idea of the quote-unquote silent majority and the people who weren't being listened to and who wanted things to, to to get better. And, you know, he'd give us, you know, he was looking for someone to bring us together was his big phrase at the time, even though mm -hmm. clearly um, his politics and other aspects of him wouldn't necessarily think that uh that there was that there was a rallying cry going on but he's clearly that was that was what he used to help get himself elected although um so yeah yeah so obviously uh, and, uh, that that comes into the whole idea of how he was able to, to to get elected and then from there um maybe as you point out do a back uh, a reversal against what was going on at the time that we met many people on, especially on the conservative side, saw as, as negative. Mm -hmm. No, very much so. And, and there, there, are, there are startling similarities in the two campaigns. You know, Reagan um, says that the um, the statement or the position that he took um, that excited the most of his audiences or the, the biggest number of people in his audiences was his promise to clean up the mess at Berkeley. Um, which was, of course, a reference to the University of California and the free speech movement and this, this belief that um, these upstart students had taken advantage of the lassitude afforded them by uh, left-wing professors and were you know, intent on breaking down the fabric of society. And uh, when he gets into power, one of the first things he does is, is he manages to politicize the Board of Regents, removes Clark Kerr, who's the head of the University of California, an attempt to, to take on the students. And you see the same sort of, you might say, anti-intellectualism in, in large swathes of conservative um, activism at this point. You know, similarly, Reagan's going on about budget. He, he has this advert um, that, that, that talks about, I think it's, uh, it talks about cities for people to be walking at night in cities you know and it's, it's there are loads and loads of these little racial undertones that you also see in the nixon campaign um that is a lot more explicit and and yes you're right they're both appealing to this silent majority of people who you know pay their taxes but don't moan about things and they moan about it through voting for reagan and, and then nixon and as you point out california and that you know, all by as you pointed, you know, since it's good that you're studying that area because uh, as the Bay Area, because it was an interesting time for a, a state that nowadays, if the average person would think of California as, you know, a liberal state, which of course isn't completely true. It's a big state, and there's plenty of mm -hmm. areas that are different from others. But San Francisco was definitely a, a focal point. Not only the rest of the California and Berkeley and stuff, but San Francisco was also a focal point during that period. So you can see how all of these things sort of came together in the in in Dirty mm -hmm. Harry. No, oh, yeah, very much so. You know, the, the San Francisco, uh, 1967. It's the human being. It, it, it attracts thousands of of young runaways and way who come to partake in the, the counterculture to experience all of this, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll. And it, and it causes immense stress on the city's infrastructure. Um, the police are constantly worried about, you know, what they're going to do with these people. And there's a large number of police who seem to 
quite be keen to <laughs> to club them over the head and send them back to their parents. Um, you know, so there, there's what what is going on in San Francisco. You might see is it's almost like the the the, the nation in microcosm, and it's of course that's that's why the, the the city of San Francisco looms so large over Dirty Harry the movie. Right. So probably the two most important names when it comes to Dirty Harry, and one's more obvious than the other, but they're both there, is Don Siegel and Clint Eastwood. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk a little bit first about Siegel, because you know this was obviously not his first film. He had been making films, but uh, what type of filmmaker was he at the point where we, I mean, what we, how would you describe him as a filmmaker? I think that the most frequent word that's used uh, to describe uh, Don Siegel is he's almost pejorative. He's an efficient filmmaker. Um, he'd come through the studio system. He knew how to make films uh, leanly and cheaply. And he knew how to, you know, you might say get the most bang for your buck. He, he's chiefly famous for um, you know, one of the most one of the most brilliant films, the 1950s Invasion of the Body Snatchers, um, a science fiction film about alien pod people coming down and taking over the United States. And, and his films were were very much um, filled with this ambiguity that you didn't really know exactly who the heroes were and, and what what the message of this movie was. Um, but for the studios, you know, he's he's a he's a director who they know can be given a script, can shoot it very quickly, get it out on the screen, and for it to make money, which is you know kind of why he makes so many you know supposed B movies. Um, <clears throat> and by the time of 1970, he he was in the midst of uh, uh, quite a collaboration with Clint Eastwood. They'd made a number of movies together. They enjoyed working together. And, and for Siegel, he found in Eastwood somebody who actually excited him i think as a star they would they would have discussions on on you know setups and shots and what worked best and, and siegel said that you know even if he didn't use what eastwood suggested he would then think of another idea that, that kind of piggybacked on it so it, it, he was clearly very interested in working with eastwood himself um but you know you, you you might say that he's kind of the junior partner in this by the time of dirty harry Right, and obviously anyone who knows anything about Eastwood as a director have heard stories. Clearly, Eastwood learned a lot from him mm -hmm. because one of the things that you usually hear about Clint Eastwood as a director is that he's very lean. Uh, he he mm -hmm. he is he has gotten you know taken on the uh, the the speed or or efficiency angle as far as mm -hmm. his filmmaking. Oh, very much so. You know, he he worked with Sergio Leone. Um, who was notoriously uh, quite a long-winded, um, in the sense that he would take, you know, have enormous number amount of takes, and the movies would take a long time to um, uh, to be produced. Um, he was also in a, a movie I can't remember um, who wrote it. It's in the book, so you'd have to buy it to find this out. Where there were there was an interminable filmmaking process, and, and Eastwood found this incredibly frustrating. And working with Siegel, I think he found it really a breath of fresh air. It's, you know, one or two takes, get it done, move on to the next one. And he absorbed that himself. And that's that's one of the the things that characterizes a Clint Eastwood movie is, is that leanness and spareness. You know, he, he sees it in very his directing in very functional terms. Is get what's there onto film as soon as you can, and and normally as cheaply as you can. I guess it's a good thing that that Eastwood never worked with Stanley Kubrick. I think there would have been. Um, Somebody would not have come out alive with that. <laughs> um, well, yeah, you know, and and we see it with um, Phil Kaufman. He works with Phil Kaufman. 
Gentleman on the outlaw Josie Wales um, who cannot work with him and such is his star power he manages to get Kaufman ejected from the movie and um, completes it himself yeah I remember it, the big deal with Invasion of Bobby's Body Snatchers which of course got remade later but in the 50s when it came out people looked at it as a Cold War allegory about you know the Russians either mm -hmm. the Russians are going to be able to come over and take over and we wouldn't know about it and then of course Siegel just, he basically said that there was nothing, there was no, he wasn't trying to make a point, he wasn't trying to be political, this is, mm -hmm. the movie is what the movie mm -hmm. was. Yeah, he, he did, and, you know, and, and I think what's so skillful about that movie is that it enables you to, to read it both ways, you can read it as an allegory about, uh, you know, the the impersonal nature of communism, you could also read it, the, the group think of, Mar of McCarthyism. Um, and that, that's what I think is, is really interesting. And he said more or less the same thing about Dirty Harry when it came out. He said it's not a conservative film. I mean, he didn't see any politics in it. Um, he himself, he was a lifelong Democrat and he, he believed in um, you know, racial equality and all of those classic liberal things. And you know, that, that, in a sense, makes him kind of an interesting filmmaker because it demonstrates that somebody with with liberal intentions can in fact make a conservative film and that, that sometimes you know when we examine films we have to be very wary and, and careful of what the screenwriters what the directors what the cinematographer and all of those people what they intended because what they intend is not necessarily what they make and the other thing about Siegel's films and you know, given the time period, it's it's important to to point out is they tended to be violent. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know, a, a B movie tends to have you know car chases, violence. Um, you know, not not necessarily the sort of ultra violence that you see today. Um, you know, by today's standards, they look quite tame, but uh, they are. You know, particularly his his early films are very very exciting. There's quite a bit of kinetic filmmaking. There's there's always something happening. There's always a dead body. There's always somebody getting beaten up here, there, and everywhere. And, and of course, you know, by its by today's standards, Dirty Harry is quite tame. But at the time in 1971, there, there's a lot of violence going on, and it, and it feeds off the violence that you see in in other movies of the late 1960s. You know, Bonnie and Clyde is the classic one where where uh, you know a bank teller gets shot in the face, and then Bonnie and Clyde die horribly at the end. Everybody talks about the Wild Bunch. Um, you know, which which is uh, you know has these balletic scenes of slow motion violence with people getting torn limb from limb by machine guns and stuff like that, and and Dirty Harry has its its fair share of violence in there. You know, it's 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 a component feature of Siegel's work, and in fact, the the well, you might say the the work the the, the general films for adults of the late 1960s, early 1970s. Okay, now turning to Clint Eastwood. We've obviously talked about him at this point in his career. I mean, obviously he had been making films for how long by the time Dirty Harry came out? He must he, quite a while. Well, he'd been making films for about eight or nine years. Um, you know, his his first major breakthrough. Uh, well, he'd been making um, uh, a major star for about that period. He'd been making films since the nineteen fifties. He's in one of the um, uh, sequels to the the creature from the Black Lagoon. He's also chiefly known for uh, Rawhide, um, you know, the, the, the very long running uh, TV show, uh, which is a western. Um, and it's that that enables him to be cast by Sergio Leone in the the uh, the Dollars trilogy, where he plays the man with no name, which is the 
the film role that really shoots him to superstardom, and that that's the thing that he's he's most known for in uh, 1971. This this taciturn loner who arrives in certain communities, shoots the bad guys, and then moves on somewhere else. You know, and that's kind of an oversimplification because what he he also brought to this this role is this this sense of kind of um, it's almost like it's a moral attitude in his films. He, he doesn't really mind who are the good guys, and he, he leads the, the viewers to think, well, well, you know, who, who is on the right side here? Who is on the bad side? What do we do as the audience? And uh, the man with no name offers no real answers um, all the way through. So he's, you know, so so Eastwood, at the point where he makes this film, is he's chiefly known as this this man with no name, and his uh, his three films prior to. Um, Dirty Harry with Don Siegel play off this. He, he plays a um, he's a cowboy in uh, the Mules of Sister Sarah. He plays a, a northern um, Civil War um, soldier in The Beguiled, and he plays Walt Coogan in Coogan's Bluff, who is essentially a, a cowboy translated or transplanted to uh, New York City. Um, so that's who he is in in 1970. He is also probably the biggest movie star of the time. So, you know, he's, he's a big deal in American cinema. Plus, he just made his first movie, um, Play Misty for Me, which itself was heavily influenced by Don Siegel. And Don Siegel himself actually appeared in it as a, as a wise bartender, you know, a heavily symbolic role in itself. There's no question that he made films that, as you say, could have almost be, con- you know, his early career, especially, and then television, uh, you know, westerns and this character, but uh, sometimes almost B-movie level. But on the other hand, he also made films that nowadays people look back as being very classic as far as what they presented and what they were. I mean, even, you know, now now the the, the, the Man With No Name trilogy is, is, is considered to be a classic, you know, series, of, a, a classic mm. series of movies. Yeah, yeah, they they very much are, and you know they're they're incredibly skillfully made movies, um, and they're, they're they're still very very watchable, and in part that's because of uh, Leone's use of sound and his use of landscape, but it's also because of of, of Eastwood himself, his incredibly magnetic screen presence, helped by the fact that he doesn't say much. You know, and and that enables you to, you to read into him, you know, almost what you want to, and and that I think makes them, um, you know, superlative films. And I think it, what Eastwood and and Siegel and South, what they do is they they call into question this um, this division between A movies and B movies, um, and they they do help to elevate the B movie to art form. You know, if that's not too pretentious a statement to make. I sometimes think people who are used to movies today and, and any kind of media today, how they – the biggest complaint I hear sometimes is it's so quiet. The movie is so quiet. And I said, well, you know, that, and that's the thing back in – you know, you talk about, mm. you know, the Dirty Hair – or in any of his films, Clint Eastwood is not a huge talker. Uh, I, no, I can't think no. of any of them where I, you would say to him that you would say that the, you, you get his presence from visuals and the way he does things and then the occasional words. But he's always been someone both in his acting and in, you know, his own directing that that values silence as much as he values uh, sound. Oh, yeah, very much so. And I, and I think that. That comes from Leone, you know, one of Leone's great uses is silence, you know, particularly in um, in, in the, the, the third volume of the trilogy, um, Once Upon a Time in the West. You, you really get a sense of 
you know, uh, just the, the terror of silence. And I agree with you that nowadays movies are full of so many auditory cues that you, you, you're being manipulated to think a certain thing. Whereas, you know, back in the 1960s, 1970s, you get a lot more science, you get a lot more of a naturalistic sound to those. And, and, and Eastwood is part of that. You know, like I say, he, he doesn't talk much. And for me, his less successful movies are the ones where he's very talkative. I think in Hang 'em High, which is kind of a... Uh, the B movie Western that comes in the wake of the uh, the Dollars trilogy, he, he does a lot of talking, and the film itself is far less powerful than him when he's standing around stalking people or just looking at them. Um, you know, and that, that's what makes him such a monumental presence in American cinema. I think is, is just that that face. It's, it's like it's like Mount Rushmore, or you know, something as um, as powerful as that. You know, anytime you see it on the big screen, it, it, it makes an impression. So let's talk a little bit about Eastwood and his politics. We've already talked about Siegel mm. saying, you know, making the point that he didn't mean this to, you know, he didn't see this as a political statement. As you point out, he's a Democrat. And, and so on Eastwood, on the other hand, we can't necessarily say that's the case in his case. He certainly um, was much more political, not even just with films, but in his life. Uh, where would you put mm. him on this at this point in particular on the scale for people who may not uh, be completely aware of Clint Eastwood's politics. Well, at this point in his life, he, he's he well he, he campaigns for for Richard Nixon. Um, you know, so he he's kind of a, a main you might say a mainstream Republican. Um, he has libertarian leanings that, that really come out uh, as he as he matures as a as a person over the next. 30, 40 years. Um, but at this time, he, he seems to me to be uh, kind of a mainstream Republican voice. He's in favor of small government, you know, leaving the little guy to do his own thing, you know, get the government off our backs, that sort of stuff. But he's not as, uh, I don't think he's as ideologically driven as some people see him today, um, you know, in the wake of some of the things he's done in, in recent years. Um, you know, but he's very much uh, a small C conservative. And, you know, the interesting thing to me about the Siegel-Eastwood uh, relationship is Siegel protested that they never, ever talked about politics. Um, you know, I don't, we don't know whether that's true or not, but um, they certainly found a way to work together, despite them having slightly different views about the, the, the way that the world uh, should be. And one of the other things is even though as time goes on and... and uh, Eastwood becomes more and more the face of conservative Hollywood. Um, he still makes movies that you can't always say, you know, you clearly can't consistently say have a political bent to them. No, oh, that's, that's, that's very true. You know, some of his films are articulate incredibly liberal sentiments. And um, uh, that, again, it, it speaks to me, again, of, of Siegel himself. You know, Siegel's a liberal who occasionally made conservative films. Eastwood is a conservative who occasionally makes very liberal films, very films that are far more, I think, humane than some of his his own personal politics are. And I think that that just adds to his mystique. Really, it makes him a very much much more interesting filmmaker than if he was a straight down the line conservative making conservative films, or indeed if he was a liberal making liberal films. Yeah, I can think of the best example I can think of something like that would be the two films he made as World War II films, Flags of Our Fathers, and then, and unfortunately I can't remember the mm -hmm. second film, which was taken from uh, the Japanese I, side. Yeah, Sands of Iwo Jima. That's it, Sands of Iwo Jima. So, yeah, that, 
that in itself sounds is is clearly somebody who's trying to uh, better understand or or show understanding or present ways of looking at things that you can't put them in a a bubble and say, oh well, this person's mm. just this way. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I think part of part of that, I think he expresses a frustration. Uh, with this, that, that uh, you know, in some of the quotes I use in epigrams for the book, um, you know, he said, "Why do people see politics in this? Why do they think it's you know the people who read politics into what I make are, are kind of daft and goofy and you know why aren't they just appreciating it as film?" And I think he does see a genuine disconnect between what he makes and what he and what he believes. Um, and again, that that simply adds to the. How interesting an individual and how interesting a filmmaker he is, in that he 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 is able, I think, maybe to separate those two um, almost diametrically opposed um, impulses, you might say, in in his in his mind. So now turning to Dirty Harry, and obviously it's not one film. There were a total of mm-hmm. five Dirty Harry films. I think that's right. Five, yeah. And uh, obviously the first one. I I mean, I'm assuming there was no major plan to do this as a group. It was just a matter that they were making a film and that was that. Um, mm-hmm. Is there a particular thing with him that San Francisco ended up, they decided that San Francisco would be a good setting? Is East, would you have any particular ties to San Francisco? Uh, he's he's from nearby. He, uh, he served uh, in the army at Fort Ord, um, which is nearby San Francisco um, during the Korean War. Um, originally Dirty Harry was due to be based in New York City, um, but when Siegel um, got the uh, got the job and when it turned out that uh, Eastwood would be the star, they simply picked San Francisco, they said, because they were nearby and they liked the atmosphere there. Um, so in some respects, it's kind of serendipitous, um, but I don't think that detracts from San Francisco's role in the film itself you know i think san francisco plays a a key role in the movie and and, and becomes a character in and of itself you know they they didn't design this as as a series it was simply a standalone movie um and and i have no reason to believe that they thought it was anything other than many of the other films that they've been shooting They, they got a script they shot it quickly um got it edited and then released and then they would move on to whichever project they they moved on to next we took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I recently interviewed a, an author about geography in Hollywood and, and the concept of settings. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the settings are totally imaginary in that you get a city that's not really the city that's supposed to stand in. But then in this case, as you point out, San Francisco, you could put up on the screen starring Clint Eastwood and San Francisco. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very much so. And I think it's it's encoded in that first scene, which I think is... is, is brilliantly executed uh where the the criminal of the film has, has shot a woman who is um bathing in a rooftop uh swimming pool of the holiday inn and uh, eastwood or dirty harry investigates the crime he sees a body notices the only vantage point 
um, from where she could have been shot, which is the Bank of America um, tower in San Francisco. And, and he heads up to the top of the tower. And instead of going straight to the point where he can look over the, uh, the top of this roof and down to the other one, he prowls around the edge of the, uh, of the roof. And it enables this, this beautiful panning shot where you see the entirety of San Francisco laid out before you, almost like in the grid pattern. And it very much demonstrates that this film is set in the real San Francisco. And they, they use a number of real places in San Francisco. They use the real mayor's office and they use the city hall um, when they go out into the, the final um, shootout. It's out in Marin County. So all the time they're using real San Francisco locations. But what I think is very, very skillful about it is it doesn't use the cliched ones. You know, there's, there's only one shot that really explicitly references the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, they head off to sort of other, especially now, well, some of which have been uh, demolished. Um, but they demonstrate that this is a real city. This is not the city of your imagination. This I'd have seen in, in I don't know what's up dark or, or other films set in this, you know, the, the, this beautiful, uh, well, the, the uh, hilly um, Bayview area. This is a, a gritty, down-to-earth San Francisco, one that has the sort of urban problems that people are seeing in their own cities around the nation. I assume I don't remember now because it's been a while since I've seen the film, but I don't remember if we see Lombard Street in, in Dirty Harry. Uh, no, we don't. I think we see it in uh, we might see it in one of the others, uh, one of the later ones. But no, you don't see that. You know, it takes for the uh, it takes until the third or the second sequel rather for them to to view the Coit Tower. Um, you know, so it, it's it's a San Francisco that is both known and unknown, right. I think, but still a San Francisco that's very vivid and, and important to the movie. And I think the word we probably would use to describe it these days would be gritty, is probably, you know, we're yeah. trying to see a city more for its underbelly than, because obviously it's a crime film in that sense, and so mm -hmm. uh, we're not trying to to, to show it in, in its necessarily best light, but certainly not, uh, you know, it's more realistic light is probably what they were looking for. Yeah, yeah. So you, you have scenes that are shot in Potrero Hill, where there's an African American community. Um, you have uh, the, the very famous scene where he uh, he becomes a peeping tom and sees and spies a, a local neighborhood woman by the name of Hot Mary, um, who's topless, and he gets beaten up in, the, in a back street. Um, the, you know, the iconic scene um, with the bank robber, where he you know he says, you know, did I shoot five shots or six? Um, you know, he's just been at a, a fairly lousy diner eating a hot dog, sees this thing happening and, you know, all loose in, in the town. So, yeah, this, this, this is a gritty city. This is a city that um, is dangerous. Um, this is the city where you have these these kind of what, what Reagan referred to as jungle paths at night, um, where people, where unknown assailants are forever prowling and where there's a serial killer wandering around um, killing people almost at random. So setting the stage, then obviously we've we've talked around it. Obviously, the the film on its on its basic level is is the story of a search for a serial killer, um, and Harry Callahan or you know Dirty Harry is 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 a policeman for the San Francisco Police mm -hmm. Department. So he gets involved in this investigation to try to find this serial killer. Well, of course. Uh, it ends up uh, becoming much more very quickly, and and this is where some of the 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 more controversial aspects of this film begin to come in. But the bottom line is, 
its initial point is to be a uh, you know police story about trying to find a serial killer at its simplest level. Yeah, it, it's the very basic, you know, cop sees um, disorder or the police see disorder in the city. They investigate. They intend to um, create order again, and they find it by by solving the crime, you know, killing the perpetrator and restoring the city to its former glory. That that's that's itself at a at a very very simplistic level. But as you suggest, there's an awful lot underneath it that I think means it's a lot richer as a film than than many people uh, first think. You know, for example, um, we see the police sort of mired in bureaucracy. Um, one of them berates. Harry Callahan for not filling out a form and not preparing a written report. Um, meanwhile, the uh, the police are fascinated with new technology. Um, they they want to get computer analysis to predict where the uh, the Scorpio killer, the serial killer, will where he will attack next time. They want to buy a helicopter to uh, uh, you know have this panoptic view of the city to spy him and, and sweat him out. Meanwhile, Callahan is saying we go for traditional methods. You know, we walk the streets, we, we use our informant network um, and we use, you know, the, the implication being we use my brilliance as a, as a detective to work out exactly where he will strike next. And we will take whatever action appropriate uh, or is even inappropriate to stop him killing again. And of course, that's right at the beginning of the film that we are we're, we're pretty quickly introduced to. Harry Callahan, the character, as far as his willingness to not necessarily follow the rules and, uh, you know, the rogue cop concept, which, of course, has become the norm anymore in, in you know, in, in any kind of cop story, whether it's in television or the movies. There's always got to be at least one policeman who's who's rogue, but he was probably one of the first real rogue cops. They like you point out the shooting scene, which is early on in the film, and we're immediately introduced to somebody who's not necessarily going to follow all the rules. That's very much so. You know, there, there are a couple of um, more muted rogue cop uh, movies beforehand, Bullet and the Detective are, are some of the chief ones. But this is the first time we see uh, a, a, a film where you, you really cannot tell the difference between uh, the policeman and, the, and a regular criminal. You know, he um, he shoots people willy-nilly, he, he assaults people, um, he beats people up. He, he doesn't abide by any of the um, uh, the legal niceties that regular police uh, have to abide by in the 1960s. And, of course, what the, the film says is that uh, this gets results. Um, Dirty Harry is proved to be right on pretty much every... Um, uh, dilemma he faces or any problem he faces and he comes up tops meanwhile the, the technocrats and the bureaucrats are left floundering um, because the, the criminals are able to take advantage of the, all of these bureaucratic um, advantages that they're given by the police um, to continue their crime sprees and Callahan comes in and stops it with brute force and of course, what's interesting about it's even though this is supposedly you know a crime drama trying to find the killer, we find the killer. He finds the killer reasonably early on in the film. It's not a matter that they wait till the very end. You know, he actually captures him early. You know, partway through the film, but he does things that will lead to the to the uh, 
to the issues related to, you know, proper procedure. And of course, all those little mm -hmm. buzzwords by that by this point in the 1960s and early 70s would tend to, to make the, you know, some conservatives in particular to be a little unhappy, things like rights and and, you know, prisoner mm -hmm. rights and those kind of things. Oh, very much so. Uh, he, um, uh, well, they have a, a cat and mouse scene where um, Callahan is sent around. He runs for about 16 miles, I calculated, and um, uh, has an encounter with, with the Scorpio killer, stabs him in the leg, um, but his, his, his pistol whipped himself and uh, falls unconscious. They then re-encounter each other at the Kizar Stadium uh, where Callahan shoots him. And... Callahan is then upbraided by the, the, I think the deputy district, of, district attorney who says, you know, have you never heard of the Escobedo decision? Have you never heard of the Miranda rights? And of course, Harold Callahan doesn't care about reading somebody their rights and reminding them of the, of the right to remain silent. He just wants to get this guy and find out where he has, well, where this, this criminal has hidden a, um, a kidnapped woman. And of course, by torturing the man, he gets the information um, but of course, they cannot actually use it in any criminal um, case that, it, that transpires because the information is gathered illegally. And again, this this reinforces Callahan's frustration with you know liberals, with bureaucracy, and and with you know 1960s policing. You know, and at one point he said, "Well, the law is an ass," and stands the door and walks out. And uh, I think that encapsulates that that conservative critique uh, of of 1960s liberalism. So when the film comes out, obviously, based on everything we've talked about, they did not, you know, they weren't making a film for any kind of reaction on a political level. Um, I keep saying they because I do think in this particular case, you can easily say that Siegel and, and Eastwood were collaborators on this film, even though um, mm -hmm. uh, Siegel is the, is the listed director. So when the film is released, how quickly or where there's even where there are even pre-release commentary or, or articles or discussion about what might be expected of this film? Well, uh, what I found was that simply that the film was initially presented and promoted as, as a, you know one, one of these star vehicles. Um, you know, the promotional material about Clint Eastwood being the, the biggest film star and the, the best paid film stars of the time. Um, you see his image on the, um, the billboard posters with this, you know, this lovely tagline, you know, this is a film about a homicidal maniac and, um, uh, and a detective and, you know, and Harry Callahan and the homicidal maniac. Harry is the one with the badge, you know, designed to make you think about this duality. So I, I don't think it is presented as a, a major contribution to um, what you might call the political uh, milieu of the, of the 1970s. It's presented as uh, holiday entertainment. Um, it's a show after Christmas, in between uh, Christmas and New Year, maybe. Um, you get your rocks off by seeing Clint Eastwood doing what he does, which is guys and um, restore order to the city. But Obviously, who, who, where did we first start to see? Uh, I don't, I don't know whether you want to use the word reactions that to the to, to what we now see as the political aspects of the film. How quickly does that start? I'm, I'm not really sure to be honest, because I, I was, I, I, the way I took the film was more to to examine it in terms of how it reflected what was going on um, 
in the the 1970s, um, rather than it as a as a major contribution to politics. You know, it, it was the film, especially, was 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 essentially dismissed by the serious film critics as a piece of garbage, a piece of trash. You know, and but I, I didn't see anybody like Richard Nixon saying, "Oh, this is the this is this is what we've got to do." Um, but I certainly get the sense that it, it contributed to this feeling amongst um, you know mainstream American audiences that you know the urban crisis had gone too far, and that this this sort of authority figure was maybe necessary to to restore this order. Of course, then. In- Obviously, there's so much to talk about just with the first film, but Mm. we want to. um, Obviously, at the end of the first film, it looked like it was going to be a standalone. He he throws his badge Mm -hmm. and quits, seemingly quits at the end of the first film, and we think that's the end of Dirty Mm -hmm. Harry. But, of course, we get sequels. Uh, Was it just a matter? I mean, I guess I should have asked this. How popular was the film? I mean, did it obviously well enough to do sequels, but but did it show Mm -hmm. popularity or was it pretty much watched and then moved on obviously being released at christmas time they obviously had their hope for popularity yeah it 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 makes a a serious amount of money um i can't remember the figures precisely but it makes a a big profit for the studio um no i think we're talking in the region of 40 million dollars so which is quite a large amount at that time of the uh, you know in the 1970s that's a huge yeah yeah and and that enables the, the, I think what what is significant in terms of Eastwood's career is that this enables him to continue to work on the projects that he really enjoys working with. Um, and when the the studio comes back to him and says, "Look, you've got to make another Dirty Harry movie," he can put up with doing that because this gives him more latitude to make these these interesting films like Honky Tonk Man and, and all of those other ones that that he that are closer to his heart. So it's it's a very profitable film, but it's also a film that gives him freedom as an artist uh, to do what he wants to do and, and and that I think is part of the reason why he returns to Harry Callahan so many times. Yeah, we hear about this with other artists who do the same kind of thing. They don't mind making a so-called popular film where the one that's going to likely make a lot of money as long as it gives them the ability and, and Eastwood's a perfect example of that where he's made so many interesting films that wouldn't necessarily be considered to be box office magnets and 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 but there are cover areas that that that, that interest him obviously bird and and some of his other you know he's always had an interest in jazz and jazz appears throughout all of his films but it gives him the opportunity he makes these other films and some of them, obviously, as we're pointing out here, they're not all B-movies, but they're clearly made for more popular reasons, and then it allows him to do some of the other things he wants to do. No, oh, yeah, very much. And this is, you know, it's the classic idea. We do one for the studio, one for me. Um, so there's kind of a quid pro quo in there for him. And, uh, you know, so I think he quite happily makes them, and he sees them really as um, a way to connect with friends almost. He chooses easygoing directors. He works with, you know, people that he's worked with for a long time. So they're, they're, not, um, they're not a great strain on him as, a, as an individual and as the star and as the, the, the focus of the film. Um, he, he has an enjoyable time on set. He gets them done. You know, he, he says to John Milius allegedly, you know, they don't have to be good. They just have to be cheap. Um, you know, get them out and move on to the next one. And um, that, that, that kind of, you know, it fits perfectly with his working methods. You know, he says, you know, I get a pencil, I come up with an idea, I then make it as a film and then I move on. You know, and th- these films are exactly the same. 
although there are parts of me that still don't completely understand why anybody thought he would be a good person to bring on for Jersey Boys. But, you know, that's that's a separate <laughs> issue right there. I mean, musicals, no. I mean, I, even a musical that's mm. supposed to take place when it takes place in a group of people, it's still not what I would have considered to be a, an obvious vehicle for, for a Clint Eastwood as a director. No, um, I I wish I could have provide an answer to that, but um, <laughs> it, it completely stumped me as well. So the sequels, um, obviously, any sequel, we, we're, as we usually know when it comes to sequels, that in very few situations can we say that the sequels in any way, shape, or form even come close to the originals. Mm-hmm. But was there anything more? I mean, you know, I, obviously there's there's quite a, there's four sequels, so to try to discuss mm-hmm. them in any details is is going to be pretty hard to do. But were there any attempts? Do you see that the sequels were meant to be as good or, or aimed towards the the first film, or were they more made for either for other reasons? I think I, I think primarily they're made to make money. You know, the, these are these are genuine box office. Um, films that, that that the studio knows that you put Clint Eastwood on the top and you've got Dirty Harry in the title that you're going to get a, a decent return, you know, and, um, and a number of them make enough and they keep on making enough money um, to keep the studio happy. So that that's the first thing. But I, I also think what they they do is once they decide to make a studio uh, a sequel, they have to work out how to make that sequel speak to the original and any preceding sequels. So in, in in essence, they they exist in dialogue with the original. Um, and you know, this is why in the the second movie, um, uh, Harry Callaghan is pitted against some real Nazis because uh, critics of um, Dirty Harry said that he was he was a fascist. You know, he, he revelled in strength and he was quite prepared to crush anybody who opposed him. So in the second one, he's against uh, a group of uh, rogue policemen who are going around killing people um, dressed in black leather so just in case you hadn't missed it they look a bit like nazi stormtroopers and, and clinton is, uh, callahan is there as the the voice of reason and i would never do this sort of thing you know I'm, I'm there to protect the system um you know then the third see the third one sees them fighting uh, radical left wingers uh, you know a thinly disgu- uh, disguised symbionese liberation army you know, and again, so it's, it's now he's back on the right, you know, and he's showing that extremism is the problem. Um, it's moderate conservatism that, that you should be in favor of. Um, then he uh, they realize that, you know, maybe a, a dirty Harriet would be a good thing. So he's uh, pitted against uh, a woman who he falls in love with, who is taking um, some people who gang raped her. And then in the end, he, he's um, he's takes on the media and uh, these, uh, this rogue filmmaker who's decided to kill a load of people, including Harry himself. So there's a degree of self-reflexivity. So at each time, you're, you're, it, these sequels turn around what you're expecting from the previous sequel, attempt to add a little bit of nuance to his story, um, but I think inevitably end up simply reinforcing it. Um, and that they end up, you know, with, with Callahan played by a 58-year-old Eastwood who is just far too old to be uh, convincing as a policeman. And it's kind of a blessed relief, I think, that uh, the Deadpool was the, the last one, that they didn't carry on uh, and make any more as he gets increasingly infirm. And yet he still does make in a movie like Sudden Impact came out, which wasn't a dirty, hairy movie, but certainly has some aspects, some some echoes of Dirty Harry in it. Are you thinking of time I'm not sure. 
I'm sorry. Uh, are you thinking of tightrope there? Oh yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's no problem. I, I, I was when I was thinking about this podcast, I was trying to make sure I got it in my head because I've made that mistake so many times. Uh, they are very similar films, you know. Um, tightrope is essentially Dirty Harry uh, or divorced Dirty Harry um, transplanted to New Orleans, and he immerses himself in this sort of voodoo atmosphere of New Orleans and has this gets involved with some kind of uh, they, they, they call it extreme. Um, Sort of sexual practices and so on, but essentially you can see this film as Dirty Harry, and you can see Callahan echoing in, in various of his roles, you know, right up until Walt Kowalski in Gran Torino, um, which you, you might see as a as a retired Harry Callahan um, back in Detroit now, um, inveighing against um, immigrants and uh, the um, well the decline of the American dream. Right. And you're right. I, I I was thinking, you know, names of Clint Eastwood film because I remember Tightrope. It was it, it. The funny part about it is Eastwood never presents himself as being or at least in, in the, the obvious films uh, as being too. What word do I he, he shows flaws? I think there's no mm. question that the scene in, uh, as you point, you've already mentioned in the first Dirty Harry film where he's peep, he's a peeping Tom. Um, and mm -hmm. you know, there's clearly, he's not trying to pretend, pretend that he's this, this perfect person. Mm. Well, yeah, he, he, he's a voyeur. Um, you know, he, um, he's a peeping Tom at another point. He, um, has a set of binoculars and he's staring at this woman who appears to be uh, inviting two men into a house for a threesome. Um, in the second film, um, he is, um, one of his, uh, one of the people who live in his apartment block, uh, an Asian American woman says, you know, what does it take to um, to go to bed with you? And he said, all you need to do is knock on the door. Um, you know, so he, he's somebody who who is, um, I suppose it's it's not so much flaws I see as it's somebody who's human uh, and has these foibles, and but you know they are very much encoded in in certain. Um, expectations of masculinity. You know, he, he's, he's obviously heterosexual. Um, he um, takes aim at uh, one of the um, the revolutionaries in the third movie, calls him a, a effing fruit um, before um, blowing him up with a bazooka. Um, you know, and he's very much um, in favor of family values. When one of his colleagues' wives expresses her sexual frustration and suggests that the two of them get together he, he declines and uh, you know moves swiftly on so again you know highly conservative but very masculine at the same time and i think that's that's part of the things that i find interesting about those sequels is the way that they reinforce his his masculinity um you know as, as a as a, a real american man so then obviously the end of the book, the, the last chapter, Dirty Harry Callahan in American Popular Culture, um, mm. obviously there's a lot of things that can be said because it turned out to be such a groundbreaking film in so many ways. And mm. we've already talked a lot about some of the things that have come out of it, the road cop and, and things like that. And now it's mm -hmm. just become a, a regular theme in, like I say, not even just movies, mm. but television shows as well. But do you see... The Dirty Harry films and Dirty Harry as a character having a lasting impact on on films and making political statements with them. 
I think so, because, you know, any time you have a rogue cop, any time you have somebody who stands up for these these traditional rights, uh, they are either explicitly or implicitly referencing Dirty Harry. Um, you know, I think that uh, in terms of his, you know, Callahan's position in, in the culture, um, you only need to point to the fact that he, he appears in The Simpsons, you know, and as soon as anything appears in The Simpsons, that's, that's kind of prima facie evidence that they are uh, an American icon, you might say. And there's no introduction to it. It's simply a character who looks a bit like Clint Eastwood, talks a bit like Clint Eastwood, behaves a bit like Clint Eastwood as Dirty Harry, um, albeit with comedic um, outcomes. And I think those are, those are the two signs that forever will be kind of in his shadow in many respects. Um, and what we see with rogue cops nowadays is that they, they always end up referencing some part of Dirty Harry. It might be the lack of a home life that's referencing Dirty Harry in the, in the original film. It might be that he, you know, he doesn't play by the rules. It might be that he has a, um, uh, a tense relationship with his superior. He doesn't like bureaucracy. All of those things we, we trace back to, to Dirty Harry himself. So it, it will forever be a touchstone for American filmmakers, whether they like it or not. You know, and, and the fact that the Library of Congress have chosen to preserve it as a, a key um, film in American history is, is another piece of evidence that it, it's going to be there, whether we like it or not, for the foreseeable future. Well, he's not he's not unwilling to reference himself. Obviously, we see the Dirty Harry, some aspects of the Dirty Harry character in many of his own performances. I can think of in the line of fire where he clearly is, uh, mm -hmm. he's a loner, he's alone, he's, he doesn't have anybody, he mm -hmm. only has his job, he's still, he's haunted by the past, and mm -hmm. clearly, um, uh, even though, you know, you, you see that he didn't obviously direct that film, but he certainly uh, appeared as, mm -hmm. as that same aspects of, of, of his of his character yeah yeah it, it, you know Clint Eastwood's screen persona is is indelibly marked with Dirty Harry that, that, you know as soon as you see him on screen you know exactly what you're going to get um, as we've talked to earlier on he's going to be um, he's not going to say very much uh, he's going to be quite um, critical of the rules he's going to get the job done and he may well shoot somebody at some point, you know, and, and I think this, I think the kind of the end of the story arc comes in uh, Gran Torino in, in Walt Kowalski, who sort of ends up repudiating everything that Dirty Harry stands for by um, engaging with the, the, um, the immigrants in, uh, in Detroit and learning how um, how he'd shut himself off from the world. And, and eventually he's, he comes to this this uh, crisis point, which ends with his apotheosis, um, just at the same point that he renounces the violence that, that Dirty Harry is um, is renowned for, and I think it's you know Gran Torino is, is a is a is a very very interesting film simply from from that perspective of Clint Eastwood finally acknowledging uh, Dirty Harry's indelible influence and indelible impact on his own career and his, his attempts, I see, to, to put Dirty Harry to bed even though I think Dirty Harry will wake up time and time again. So I have to ask, as, as we're getting towards the end, what were the reactions when you showed Dirty, showed Dirty Harry in, in your classes? What kind of reaction from people who I assume were all, none of them were American, I would assume they were all British or, or mm -hmm. you know, lived in Britain, 
What kind of reactions did you mm-hmm. see from from your students for some, for a film that, in many ways, from many people would identify as being particularly an American film? Uh, I think the the first thing that always they were saying is that how cool was was Clint Eastwood. Um, they they loved the character. Um, which I found quite disconcerting because by this time I'd seen the film, you know, dozens of times already and was kind of quite sick of him. Uh, they they really hit home, that, that really hit home with them, the, the way he, you know, the way he deals with um, criminals, the, his one-liners, his quips. And I, I think that was a reflection of the way that the film presents Dirty Harry's ideology as common sense. You know, we know that common sense is highly ideological and constructed in itself, but it seems very simple and straightforward. So that, that was the thing they honed in on. But they I think they genuinely enjoyed the film. Um, they found it, you know, they, they still find or they, they found the distance from, you know, this is 40 years after the event. So the film styles were very different then. Um, they found some of the sequences a little boring. They didn't find the violence troubling at all because it was, you know, by their standards, uh, very, very tame. But because of the way that the, the module um, was constructed, I'd already given them uh, a lecture on the sort of things to look out for. So I'd ask them to look out for the religious sim- you know, symbolism, you know, the way that the cross appears from time to time and the way that he utters Jesus Christ at one or two occasions. You know, what does the, uh, the Scorpio um, character represent? And they would always notice that he was a countercultural um figure who had long hair who called the the police pigs and those sort of things so they they actually were able to read into it um really really well i thought um but i think overridingly they 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 actually enjoyed the film as a film which i i thought was was actually quite heartening in in kind of a way because you know by that stage i was you know to be frank sick of the film well as i say that the, the this is an interesting period of time in filmmaking, obviously, and, and it mm-hmm. is, has now become a pretty regular p- area where we, we see a lot of study now in this period of filmmaking for a variety, not just for, in mm-hmm. this case, for, you know, like like cop films, but other types of films as well. And so, and then I think your, your points about, and your book really does a great job of first giving the background of the whole film, you know, where both background of Clint Eastwood and, and Siegel and then how the film was made and and the and the part of the city and the importance of the city and then so on so I have to say I, I thank you I, I hope that people will will reach out for this book because um, I mean it's been out now for for I've, it was released in 2016 I think 2016 but, but it's still from you know I always like books that that try to do what yours does which is to give us a, oh, a, an overview a, a real sense of, of of the entire film not just the film itself but the, the the background and the in the time period and all those things so I have to tell you I, I really enjoyed talking to you about this film and i think we've only really scratched the surface and even though you're probably pretty much tired of cleaning of dirty harry I, I still think that i hope that uh you know your interest that you've presented enough information here that people will see the book for what it is which is a great study of an important uh, character and film and filmmakers oh thank you so much that's very kind of you to say joel you know it's um 
it's it's really heartening to see that that to hear a reader say that they they enjoyed it and that that's the the reason I wrote the book was to to get people to to enjoy reading about it and you know I didn't want it to be one of these um dry academic exercises that uh, is alienating to uh either a general reader or indeed a student and, and I'm I'm really really heartened to hear that uh, you know I may have been successful in in at least part of that um that ambition. So thank you very much for saying so. Well, I do try to talk. I mean, I'm a firm, firm fan of just of many books that are do the same kind of thing in the sense that they try that, that they present all much information. There's been some really great books out on various films mm. and, and, and that do the same kind of thing. And I just think that yours is, is right up there. So as I say, I hope people reach out for it. And uh, as I say, it's published by University Press of Florida. Florida. But uh, mm. uh, as I say, hopefully it is it will continue to be of interest and people will continue to read it. And I really want to thank you for taking the time uh, to speak to me. And uh, it's later in the day for you, but uh, mm. we were able to work out a time that worked for both of us. So thank you very much for uh, your time. Oh, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I've really enjoyed every moment of this. And um, yeah, I, I hope uh, people who listen to this um, get a similar amount of enjoyment out of the book. Thanks a lot. My great thanks to Joe. The first Dirty Harry film in particular is still considered a groundbreaking movie and I hope that Joe's book will give you new insights into the entire series. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books in Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.